It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, January 31st, 2022. A brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Coast to coast and around the world. That's our live broadcast, 3 to 6. If you miss any of it, or if you just prefer podcasts, we have that too. GuyBensonShow.com for all of the details on everything. The podcast is free of charge. On demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's who we have for you guest-wise on the show today. Byron York will join us coming up this hour. Looking forward to chatting with Byron about immigration and a few other topics as well. Jessica Tarloff, new mother. She'll be back here talking about motherhood and also just being a lib. We'll ask her about Democrat stuff. Maybe uh, have a pleasant agreement or disagreement on a few things with our friend Jessica Tarloff in the next hour. We will also catch up in our final hour with Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. I want to ask him about the Supreme Court vacancy, about crime across the country, and just the latest poo-pooing dismissal of the rise in crime, particularly violent crime, from a top White House official. We will get to that audio. Plus, Matt Napolitano with sports, another exciting weekend in the NFL playoffs and the tantalizing rumor and report surrounding the potential imminent retirement of the greatest quarterback of all time. As much of it, it pains me to say that, it does, but I think Tom Brady has earned that title. But could he be hanging up the cleats? Perhaps so. We'll get into all of that at the end of the show today. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's do stats. 73 point or 74.3 million cases all in. That's a cumulative official case count. As we have discussed many times over, it's a low ball. The real number of cases in the United States of COVID over the last two years, much higher than that. Although I would say significantly over the last two weeks in the U.S., the case count as a percentage has gone down by 35%. That's a very big drop over the last two weeks as the Omicron wave is obviously receding. And the consequences of that, the meaning of that precipitous fall off, I think is something that we'll touch on here in just a second. The death toll, Americans who have died with or of COVID since the pandemic began, is now 883,370. I would note there's a graphic that was published in the New York Times and shared by David Leonhardt, who I generally trust. I see that the knives are out for him on the left because he's refusing to feed into their panic porn on COVID. Right? He will actually tell important truths and put things into context in a way that the panic brigade, uh, brigade rather, doesn't like. So he's now uh, you know, feeling the heat from his left. Even though, I mean, he's not out there spreading misinformation or anything. He's just trying to 
take a beat and have everyone keep things in perspective and maybe not like harm our kids with a bunch of unnecessary mitigation. But that is a sin on the hard left. The pro-lockdown, pro-restriction, forever COVID people. But I think he's a credible source. And he used CDC data to once again illustrate the incredible effectiveness of the vaccines. I know that there's people out there saying, oh, the vaccines don't even work. That is not true. The vaccines work incredibly well at keeping people out of the hospital, avoiding very serious bouts of COVID, and certainly dying from COVID. Right? It does not block transmission. It does not stop the ability to get, contract COVID, or pass it to someone else. That's especially true under Omicron. And we have other things that can help us fight the disease, including antibodies and other treatments and some pills that have been now approved. That's all true. But the vaccines massively reduce your chances of dying from COVID. In fact, writes Leon Hart, they turn COVID into something that presents less of a risk than the flu or car crashes, which would mean to me that we're sort of done with this. If you're vaccinated and therefore your life is at less of a risk from COVID than if you got the flu or getting in a car crash, it is no longer in any way, shape, or form acceptable to have restrictions. It doesn't make any sense. It's totally irrational and anti-scientific. So this news is not only great news on the vaccine front, just to reiterate, and he really spells out the numbers. You're like seven times likelier to die. This was at the end of last year, over the span of about a month, the weekly average deaths per 100,000 among the unvaccinated was nearly eight out of every 100,000 of unvaccinated people would die from COVID. If you were vaccinated, it was 0.6. So it dropped from 7.8 in terms of weekly deaths on average, per 100,000, if you're unvaccinated, to 0.6 if you are vaccinated, even without a booster. If you've gotten boosted, and I would argue some natural immunity also counts for that, it's 0.1 average deaths per 100,000 if you're boosted, and fully vaxxed plus boosted. 0.1 average weekly deaths versus 7.8 if you're unvaccinated. So that's just a little PSA. Once again, for me, on the vaccines, we're very pro-vax here. We're also anti-mandate, and we're definitely anti-mindless, anti-data control, which is what so many people are revealing themselves to be more interested in than science or really anything else. And I've done all of this in the context of just giving you the stats, but it's all going to play into what I'm going to get to more in this opening monologue. I'll give you the Dow, too, while I'm at it. Dow is up. 174 points, 34,897, and we've got, you know, 47 minutes to go till the closing bell. But it's a nice wind-up to what we saw last night. I mentioned when I was teasing that we're going to be talking football a little bit later, there were good games yesterday in the NFL. The first game was, uh, I think, a little bit more exciting, but the second game was, was really good also. Out in California, Los Angeles, it was the Rams hosting the 49ers. Why do I bring this up? Because they have the new stadium out there, which will be home to the Super Bowl. It's hosting the Super Bowl in two weeks. SoFi Stadium. And it is a largely indoor stadium. And 
among the crowd indoors yesterday were a host of California politicians, including Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, Mayor Breed of San Francisco, and let's just say, to borrow a phrase from London Breed, the San Francisco mayor, they were all feeling the spirit at this football game because they were all photographed, along with Magic Johnson, the former NBA great, they are, like, taking selfies, posing for photos, big grinning faces. They're all in this, you know, luxury suites, which seems nice. So they're inside a luxury suite, inside this mostly indoor stadium, at a game packed, filled with tens of thousands of screaming fans. And they are all, of course, not wearing masks. Now, you might say, who cares? And generally, my response would be, who cares? These are all vaccinated people who've made decisions for themselves. They're vaxxed. I'm guessing they're all boosted. They're making a risk calculation that is the exact same one that I would make. If I were offered seats to that game, hey, do you want to come to a luxury suite, take a photo with Magic Johnson and watch an NFL playoff game? Yep, I would show up with bells on and without a mask on. Except, here's the problem. There is an indoor mask mandate in place in the state of California, thanks to Governor Newsom. Now, we know that he doesn't care about such things in his own personal life. If he wants to go to a crowded, special, swanky dinner at one of the most prestigious and expensive restaurants in the country, the French Laundry, in the middle of the pandemic, while the whole thing was raging and there were no vaccines yet, and he was going to dine indoors with people when no one else was allowed to, well, he did that, of course. Because he's special and he's the governor and the other people aren't special and they're not the governor. So go screw yourselves. Same thing with Pelosi and the hair, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, out on the town partying without a mask on. She got really mad when she got called out on it. We don't need the mask police. These people are the mask police. That's the problem. Governor Newsom is the mask police. There is an indoor mask mandate in California. By his authority. At SoFi Stadium, the rule is you have to wear a mask unless you're actively eating or drinking. None of them are actively eating or drinking. None of them have food or beverages in their hand in any of these photographs. They're just living it up, grinning for the camera. And again, that's fine, except these are their rules. So there was a mother who is an attorney out in California, and she tagged Newsom in this photograph because it was posted by Magic Johnson on his social media. She saw it, and here's what she wrote. Gavin Newsom, did you enjoy San Francisco versus L.A. tonight at SoFi Stadium? Love your gorgeous, maskless face. Unmask my children now, please. My toddler, 5-year-old, and 7-year-old are going to school in L.A. County tomorrow and will be sent home if they unmask, like this, even outside. We told you about that last week. Los Angeles County has now decided where this game was being played. This is a Los Angeles home game. The game last night was being played in L.A. That was a Sunday night. By Monday morning the next day, the children in in Los Angeles, the kids who go to school, the government schools in L.A., have to wear medical quality masks that are fitted 
and they have to wear them even when they are outside, which is absolutely, totally disconnected from any science whatsoever. There's nothing to it. Nothing. Masking indoors in schools is a totally unproven, not data-driven so-called mitigation policy. It is indefensible. You have a growing chorus of doctors saying, enough, let's end it. It doesn't work. Outdoors is totally insane. But that's what the children, five-year-old, six-year-old children in Los Angeles, that's what they're subjected to, outdoor masking. And yet here are these adults and by, oh, the kids might not be vaccinated, Guy. That's, that's the difference. The kids might not be vaccinated. Well, first of all, a lot of these kids in California are vaccinated. Second of all, unvaccinated children are at less of a risk from COVID than vaccinated adults. Kids are overwhelmingly safe from this virus, as we will say for the 1,000th time. So you have... These adults who are making the rules out there in California who have demonstrated now repeatedly that they don't believe in their own rules. They don't care. They're going to impose things on all of you, especially your children, and then they're going to go live their lives. There's a Monmouth poll out today where they ask people, should we just accept that COVID is now endemic, it's going to be here to stay and live our lives, Or should we continue with a bunch of restrictions and mitigation strategies? 70% of the country said, let's just learn to live with it and live our lives. 70%. That's the Barry Weiss approach, right? Being over COVID and pressing forward. Seven out of 10 Americans now believe that, including obviously people like Gavin Newsom and London Breed, Mayor Garcetti, these these good pro-science California Democrats who are violating the mask mandate, posing for photos because they don't care. But the indoor mask mandate still applies to you. It still applies to your business if you're in California. You could get shut down if you're a restaurant, if you're not enforcing this stuff or levied with you know major fines. And if you're a kid, you can get thrown out of school and suspended and sent home if you are caught doing what these adults are doing indoors in a packed stadium that's not allowed for the children of los angeles but it is allowed for the officials in los angeles at a football game this is the complete madness that i think drives people up the wall in oregon by the way the bureaucrats up in oregon in that government out on the left coast they have announced that they are moving to a permanent mask mandate, including for K-12 through schools, permanent. They were annoyed because the previous temporary one was only for 180 days, so like six months. And they didn't want to have to keep re-upping it every six months, so they said, we're just going to make it permanent now. Well, we can always rescind it, so it'll be sort of a, a temporary permanence, but it's a permanent mask mandate moving forward in Oregon, including for kids in school. It's totally crazy. I think the 70% of us need to band together and act like it. Because as I keep saying, we need to bend to our will the holdouts and the COVID dead-enders. 
and the zero COVID zealots who cannot be allowed to call the shots. And when you have people pandering to that crowd and they won't even live their own lives accordingly, to me that is like a wide open opportunity to dunk on these people as absolute hypocrites who should be ignored. Problem is if they're setting the law, you can't ignore them. You have to beat them. I guess out in California, Gavin Newsom doesn't fear that because he just won by 30 points, despite everything. So I guess, sorry, tough luck, California. But for the rest of the country, don't be California. Please don't be California. Another California story related to Governor Newsom on a different subject, critical race theory. We'll get to that as soon as we return. Just getting started today on The Guy Benson Show. A brand new week. Glad you're here. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back to the show. Talking about Governor Newsom out in California, who signed a law, by the way, last year requiring ethnic studies as a prerequisite for graduating from high school out in California. That's what he did. In a recent interview, we covered it here on the show. He was attacking Ron DeSantis because, of course, he was marching orders against DeSantis from the whole left in the media these days. And he was uh, going after Florida. And one of the things that he did was he was sneering about critical race theory as, quote, something that doesn't exist. That's what Gavin Newsom said. Well, Robbie Suave at Reason has an extensive report about one school in California, and it's definitely not the only one, where there absolutely is critical race theory being taught as part of the requirement on ethnic studies. There's a teacher who has Jamaican ancestry who teaches mostly students who have Spanish as their first language, and she saw that lots of those students were failing ethnic studies. She's like, what's going on? These kids speak Spanish. Why are they failing at huge rates, this ethnic studies class? So she looked into it, and what she discovered was that this was, quote, extreme left brainwashing of these kids, critical race theory all throughout the lessons from start to finish. And she provided slides from the lesson plans that were online that cite critical race theory by name. That's under the requirements now in California. 
Governor Newsom says this thing doesn't exist. Care to comment, sir? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. Let's welcome back to the show now Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, good to have you back. Hi, Guy. Good to be here. I want to start with something a little bit off the beaten path before getting to immigration with you. And it's not that far off the beaten path because I see a lot of people have commented on it. You tweeted about it. The former president, Donald Trump, put out a statement yesterday where he was basically attacking yet again Vice President Pence for basically refusing to help him steal the election and going after Democrats and so-called rhino Republicans, he says, like wacky Susan Collins, uh, for trying to clarify the Electoral Count Act. And the point the president, I guess, is trying to make is if they need to clarify the law that the vice president can't change the election, using his words there, no right to, quote, change the presidential election results. That's how Trump frames it. Uh, If that needs to be clarified in the law, then that would suggest that Pence did have the right to change the election results unilaterally as vice president. And that feeds into his whole narrative that Pence was weak and wrong and that the election was stolen from him and Pence could have done something about it with a magic wand. There's a lot of nonsense piled on top of nonsense there, but it seems like the closest Trump himself has come to just straight up admitting that what he wanted Pence to do was change the election results And I just wonder what you make of the president's statement there. And then I have one follow-up on the politics of it. Well, he did come out and flat out say it. The last sentence of the uh, statement you just mentioned, which he sent out last night, was, quote, Unfortunately, he, Pence, unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. Um, So, listen, Pence was right in what he did and refused to do on January 6th. There's simply no doubt about it. And Trump put Pence under a lot of pressure, privately and publicly, to try to go along with this idea that you could overturn the election results. Pence correctly saw that he could not. There was no basis to do it. Um, And he didn't do it. He stood up to it. So I think Pence showed a lot of strength. He showed a lot of character, and he was right. And I agree, this is, this is Trump coming out and just flat out saying he wanted to overturn the election results. Yeah, which is not surprising because he was pressuring Republican officials in a number of states to help him steal the election. In Arizona, in Georgia, he told the Secretary of State to you know, fa- find, go out there and find thousands of votes so he could win in Georgia. He's also gone on this revenge tour trying to basically end the careers of Republican politicians, even supporters of him, 
who were not sufficiently eager to participate in overturning an election. And sometimes his defenders say, well, Trump isn't really talking about overturning the election per se. He's concerned about irregularities and slates of electors and that sort of thing. But he then sort of kneecaps those arguments by saying, unfortunately, Pence didn't exercise the power that Trump believes that he had to, quote, overturn the election. And setting aside the total lack of legal basis for Pence to have done something like that, and Pence was correct to refuse to do it, and, you know, there was a reason why some of the rioters on January 6th were chanting for his death because they had been convinced by a bunch of lies that maybe he could have done something differently. But, Byron, if Al Gore in 2000 had decided, well, I've been cheated, the Supreme Court, you know, short-circuited the recount process, and I'm really the rightful winner, or I might be the rightful winner in Florida and of the presidency, I don't like how this went down, I'm the vice president, I'm going to preside over this process of the counting the electoral votes, and I'm just going to overturn the election. I don't care what the Supreme Court said. I don't care what anyone else decided or what the votes looked like. I am going to toss this election out or toss it back to the House or something like that. I don't think anyone would have defended that. I mean, there have been some hardcore lefty hacks who would have, but overall that would have been seen as an absolutely egregious attempted abuse of power. And looking forward, if Joe Biden or the Democrats, whoever's running, lose in 2024 and Kamala Harris decides you know what, I don't like this outcome. I'm going to try to overturn the election and maybe the Democrats would have the House of Representatives. It's not looking likely at this point, but, you know, let's let's uh, try to overturn the election. And as vice president, I, Kamala Harris, have the ability to do this on my own. I mean, that is something that would raise howls from not just conservatives, but many Americans, because it's very obviously not a power that is concentrated in any one person, let alone the vice president who's just there to oversee the counting of the electoral votes. But this is apparently the working theory of the former president of the United States. Well, you have to remember the the Electoral College, the states had all certified their results. The Electoral College on December 14, 2020, had voted. Uh, The results were in. No legislature and no court had made any decision to either uh, throw out Joe Biden electors or to pass a uh, dueling slate of electors. The whole so-called Eastman memo, which was the theory in some Trump circles that that Pence could uh, at least throw the election back to some states, the whole point of the, the memo, and it says it on the short version, just flat out in the first sentence, seven states have submitted dual slates of electors. Well, they had not. And that, that so there were no states that submitted dual slates, and there were no courts or legislatures that had overturned them. So there was, you know, if there had been, you know, if a couple of states uh, had done that, then we would have been in a kind of a crisis situation like we'd maybe been in once or twice before, um, and it would have called for some sort of action. But there just wasn't, and so Pence was and that's entirely correct. part of the reason perhaps why there's a push on a bipartisan basis to clarify the Electoral yeah. Count Act, so some of this ambiguity is gone if 
additional steps are taken toward chaos in the future. And I would just point out the last point I'll make on this is if you wanted to prove that Trump got a raw deal and was robbed in any state, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, you take your pick. His team had the opportunity to prove that over and over again in court. They were given chances by judges, including Trump appointed judges. Show us the evidence. And they lost every single case. And in some cases, they didn't even try to present any evidence. They just sort of stipulated that there wasn't fraud and were arguing on other sort of esoteric grounds. If you're going to make extraordinary claims like the election stolen and should be overturned by the vice president, you have to do it based on concrete evidence in a society where there's a rule of law. And this was adjudicated over and over again in court, and they failed every time. And that's something that's important to note. I hate looking backwards, Byron, and talking about this and relitigating this again. I I wish we could just move past it. The problem is Trump won't allow that. Trump keeps beating this drum. And I just wonder, this is my political question before we get to immigration, I would say the former president is very strongly considering running for president again in 2024. It almost seems inevitable that he's going to do it. I just wonder, is there any growing number of Republican voters who say we like Trump, we love a lot about him, we wish that he could just let go of this stuff and we can move on? It seems like that will never be something that he can do. So if you look ahead to 2024, do Republican voters want to have a candidate who is going to have a campaign focused on at least in large measure, and you know the media will be all over this and the Democrats looking backwards at election lies and conspiracy theories and January 6th and all of that, which seems like a ticket to losing again or at least having a much uh, lower opportunity of, of winning, which I think Republicans have a good chance to win in 2024, given how disastrous Joe Biden has been as president. Or do you want someone who can move forward and maybe take some of the elements of Trumpism and Republicanism and populism and that sort of blend that's been working for the party and make that sort of leap forward with the electorate without some of this baggage from Donald Trump, who insists on lugging this baggage everywhere with him. Like he could have just sort of dropped it and shaken it off and looked toward the future. He clearly refuses to do it. I just wonder if if there might be some concern and fatigue that elect that the electorate, the Republican voters, might start to feel about someone who won't let it go and worry that that could actually harm or hinder the Republicans' chances of winning in the next presidential. Yeah. Well, you know, Bill Clinton used to uh, famously say that all elections are about the future. And it's really actually true. And um, the, the, the thing to remember about Trump is that still it's been a year since he left office. Um, and uh, you see all the media talk about how he's, you know, the undisputed leader of the party and in control and the party, the entire party's enthralled to him, et cetera. But we have signs that uh, Republicans, some Republicans are moving on. There was an NBC poll not too long ago. Very interesting. The question was of, asked of Republicans, do you consider yourself uh, more a Republican or do you consider yourself more a supporter of Donald Trump? And during the Trump years, a majority uh, said supporter of Trump first, Republican second. And now it's flipped over. A uh, majority says Republican and a minority says 
still a significant minority, so a supporter of Trump. And I think what you're seeing is uh, the inevitable process that time moves on. Things happen. Joe Biden is the president. There are Republicans in Congress who are reacting to him. And I think it's important that we see a large and competitive um, primary process in 2024. And, you know, if we do, I think things will be fine. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows what people are going to decide and what they're going to choose? It just seems clear to me and clearer every day that Trump is not going to let go of this. He's going to keep insisting that he won last time. And if that's the fight that people want to keep having over and over again, then he's probably the best nominee for the Republican Party in 2024. If they want to build on the gains of Trump and Trumpism and turn the page and not have that same baggage, then, which seems like the much smarter course of action to me, you'd be looking very carefully at who might pick up that torch Uh, if not Donald Trump. And uh, that's a conversation, of course, I guess we'll be having now for months and years to come. But that statement he put out yesterday really bothered me. It was crazy. It's just a complete wild conspiracy theory where he's again attacking members of his own party, which he does all the time, all in service of this this made-up victimhood thing that he's invented for himself. And I just wanted to talk about it and sort of refute it here on the air. I've probably given it too much oxygen. So let's move on, Byron, to the other major topic I wanted to ask you about, which is immigration. We had Bill Malugin, our Fox colleague on this show on Friday. We ended up keeping him for two segments because the things he was revealing and sharing are just shocking about what's happening at the border. We all know there's been a crisis. The crisis is ongoing. It is still spiraling. But there are new elements to the crisis that in some ways seem worse and more concerning than they have been even in previous horrible months, like the shocking number of single male illegal immigrants who are just being released into the country or even like bus to airports and flown wherever they want to go. You have these secret flights that are going out in the middle of the night. That's still happening. A bunch of no comments or weak spin from DHS in their public statements. There's videos being released of, you know, rank and file Border Patrol agents being very upset with the leadership, whether it's Secretary Mayorkas or the leader of uh, Customs and Border Patrol. Those videos have sort of gone viral. There's also a report from Malugin this weekend. Five Syrian nationals from Syria were just apprehended at the border. And I saw you pointed this out on Twitter, Byron, that now the biggest category In terms of the origin of illegal immigrants getting encountered at the southern border, it's no longer Mexico. It's no longer the northern triangle Central American countries. The largest category now is other, which would be people from all over the world coming to the southern border to try to enter the country illegally. Just your context and overall analysis of the current state of this ongoing border crisis. Well, those are two related uh, phenomenon. One, there there really is a covert program to really to relocate illegal border crossers in the United States, and it's not just families, as we were told before. Uh, it is uh, single adult, mostly males. Bill Malugin, who's doing a great job, watched as bus after bus after bus pulled up in Brownsville, Texas. 
uh, dropping uh, single adult males off at a facility where NGOs, non-governmental organizations, would help them and then put them on planes to various parts of the country. And we saw a, uh, <clears throat> a, um, uh, a body cam video from a, from a security officer uh, at Westchester County Airport, about 30 miles outside of Manhattan, um, when a plane arrives in the middle of the night, unmarked, and a bunch of uh, single adult males start, you know, coming down the steps. Uh, and the security officer didn't know what was going on. And the uh, the non the government contractor, the NGO employee who was, a, who was a government contractor, said a lot of this is just down low stuff that we don't tell people because what we don't want to do is attract attention. We don't want the media like we don't even know where we're going when they tell us. No, it's totally so, outrageous, Byron. Quickly, we have less than a minute. Your thoughts on the quote unquote other category that I mentioned. And now that you've got the, what what these relocations that I'm talking about create is even more of an incentive to come. Yes. And what we've seen in this new report is that it's not Mexicans or Guatemalans, Hondurans, uh, or Salvadorans coming. It's Russians. It's Ukrainians. It's Turks. It's Romanians. It's Indians. It's people from everywhere around the world who see this incentive. And there are clear security problems in just uh, allowing people to cross the border, yep. not having sufficient identification, and then sending them to Albuquerque. You know, it's just uh, – or sending no, it's, it's them making to a, It's a total mockery. It's making a total mockery of the rule of law, of our national sovereignty, of our you know border enforcement system. And the people in charge of enforcing the laws are obviously disgusted that they're being prevented from doing so by the intentional policies of the Biden administration, which they are attempting to hide from the American people. And very few people are covering it. Bill Malugin's covering it. Byron York is covering it. We're covering it here. We're going to keep covering it because it's a very real issue. And it's one of the worst failures of this administration in a very long list. Byron York of the Washington Examiner and Fox News contributor. Byron, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Well, you might recall last week I got into it a little bit with Juan Williams about President Biden's approach on the Supreme Court vacancy where he announced, well, we're going to uh, narrow it down to only black women and then go from there felt to me like that was sort of a disservice to the nominee and kind of doing the whole thing backwards. One vehemently disagreed. Well, there's a poll out which asked the American people about this, and it's a lopsided win for one of those viewpoints. We'll tell you about the poll, get reaction when we come back. Middle hour, Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. We're diving into a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. First show of the week on this Monday, every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. It's the Guy Benson Show Plus, round the clock, on demand for free on the podcast at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fox News alert. Big day on Wall Street. The Dow up 406 points, ending at 35,131. 
Joining us now on the show is Jessica Tarloff, co-host of The Five on Fox News Channel, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, and she's just constantly adding new titles here, chief romance correspondent, chief baby correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. Regardless, Jesse, welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, speaking of being our chief baby correspondent, of course, you are a new mother. You have little Cleo at home. How is the BB? How are you? Good. We're good. She's growing very fast. Everyone seems to think this is a very large baby. So I've been fielding questions like, "What? she's only seven weeks? And she doesn't have a weigh-in again <laughs> until Valentine's Day. That was actually the funniest part, being at the pediatrician. And they're like, oh, Cleo's next appointment would be Valentine's Day. Do you have plans? I was like, what new parents are like, oh, yes, yes, yes. We have huge plans. For on our first <laughs> Valentine's Day with a tiny baby. Yeah, we're we're going out, babe. Um, so anyway, I'm going to the doctor on Valentine's Day. Are you guys doing anything for Valentine's Day since you have no children? Uh, nothing that has really been planned yet. I think that might be the day after the Super Bowl. Uh, it is. is. Is it a Monday? Yeah, it's sort of like yeah. Nothing. Nothing on the books yet. Maybe that's actually a good okay. reminder. Maybe I should write that down and plan something. But this is, okay, last question about uh, the baby stuff before we get to politics. I feel like at a certain age, especially with a baby, you said it's like you've got a large, Cleo's big, and growing, is she just like blowing through clothes, right? You have like tiny size, and then they're just like obsolete within a matter of weeks, and you have to just keep buying new sizes of clothes? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I didn't get any newborn clothes anyway, because I just presumed based on my size and my husband's size that she was going to go straight into zero to three, um, which is like the second size past, you know, the one after newborn. But yeah, it's an an incredible racket, the baby world. Um, And that's why (laughs) one thing that I do think is really nice is that it's such a strong community, like amongst mothers. there's a lot of hand-me-down stuff that happens. So we, I took everything my friends wanted to give me. I got stuff from my sister. My nephew is like 20 months, 19 months, um, took stuff from him. You know, like whatever you can get your hands on, do, because it's only going to last you like one to three months anyway. Okay, duly noted. I'm going to, just in case that ever comes in handy, I might have to circle back with you as our resident expert here. All right, let's shift now, Mm -hmm. Jesse, to politics. Uh, I teased this at the very end of the last hour, and I want to get your take on it and maybe a few of our other guests over the course of the next few days. And it deals with this Supreme Court vacancy and the way Joe Biden has set about filling it. And for various reasons, I was on the air on Outnumbered when the news broke that Breyer was going to retire. And I made the case on this show in one of our monologues last week that I think overall this is likely to be a relatively low drama, low decibel affair, uh, because as far as Supreme Court vacancies go, it's relatively low stakes uh, because it's, you know, not a shift in the court's ideological makeup and that sort of thing. But one part of the debate that seems to now be percolating and maybe growing and gaining a little bit of steam is President Biden's campaign promise to only consider a black woman for this position. And then that is what his uh, his team has affirmed. That is how he's going to go about this. 
And I had Juan Williams on the show last week, who's longtime co-host of The Five, and now you're one of the liberals holding down the fort in that seat on a regular basis Mm -hmm. on FNC. But Juan and I talked about this issue and had a bit of a disagreement on it. Um, he, He thought I was way off base in my contention that I just think it, this is kind of an unseemly way to go about things. And just to announce from the get-go, we are going to eliminate, you know, the vast majority of potential nominees based solely on the basis of sex and race. And we're going to move forward from that starting point. And I just felt like that didn't feel very progressive to me in the true sense of the word you know, the derivative of progress. And I just didn't think that that was a great idea and also maybe not a great favor to whoever he ends up picking because I felt like he could just say, we're going to find the best person. And if that ends up being a highly qualified black woman, great. And they can sell that and tout that all they want, and they definitely will. Just the explicit way that they use uh, sex and race as a starting point uh, was a turnoff to me. And, and Juan disagreed and I think that he sort of unfairly characterized what was motivating my view on that but look we're friends we got over it yesterday a poll comes out from ABC News that asked the American people about this should President Biden consider all qualified nominees or should he stick to his promise to only consider black women and it was 76% on my side of this saying no let's let's not play this demographic game he should consider all the worthy nominees and then select from there as opposed to starting based, you know, with some discrimination saying we're only going to consider people of this uh, skin color with this genitalia. That's, you know, our our first qualifications are those demographic things. Only 23 percent of respondents said that they were in favor of that. So polls do not prove that I am right. Right. It shows that my view is more prevalent than Juan's. I just wonder how you feel about it. I don't think it'll be end up end up being like determinative about what happens to the nomination or the confirmation process. But it just seems like an an unnecessary own goal by Biden to create this little controversy and make it seem like he's pandering to a fringe of the left where most of the country feels like it's not really the best way to go about this. So I, I agree with Juan on this and I agree with President Biden's pledge um, and following through on it. And the reason that I feel that way is that I don't think it in any way connotes that the best person will not be chosen. I think that it points out a problem that a particular group has been continually looked over. This is a particular group that is very important to the core uh, Biden backing demographic in terms of voting, which were uh, black voters, right? We all know how things turned for him once Jim Clyburn got involved in, you know, South Carolina and then all of Super Tuesday. And I think that if you had taken the same poll right around when Ronald Reagan said, I will put the first woman on the court, you might have had even more than 76% that say, we just want the most qualified person, right? Because it was definitely a more sexist world in the 80s than it is today. And I think that representation matters. Um, I think that it's a little bit, and I'm not saying this about you, but about a lot of people that are criticizing 
President Biden's decision to follow through on this promise when they said nothing about Donald Trump saying, not only do I want a woman, but I'm only going to take someone that the Federalist Society has okayed and put the rubber stamp on, which is an even tinier demographic, right, than women, conservative women in general. Obviously, no one in their right mind thinks that a Republican president should pick a liberal or, or a liberal should pick a Republican leaning judge. Um, but I, I really don't see a problem with it. And I think that when you look at the court, that each boundary that has been broken has been important for the future of the Supreme Court, from having the first Jew on the Supreme Court to having the first black person on the Supreme Court to having the first woman on the Supreme Court. And no one raises an eyebrow for a long, 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 long time when it's all just white men over and over and over and over again. And when it gets to the point, and I'm including Clarence Thomas in this, right, as a black man, where we start being more inclusive, then people start voicing concerns about, you know, well, what about the best person? And a lot of times the best person actually has been overlooked because we haven't been paying attention to groups that have been traditionally disenfranchised. And so I have no problem with it. I didn't listen to Juan's interview. I don't know if I added anything extra to what he said, but that's how I feel about it. Okay. I mean, I, I just don't agree. Um, and I feel like – okay. You can you can say here's my problem with it, and I don't have a problem with representation. I don't have a problem with inclusivity. I don't have a, an issue with trying to groom people who have been traditionally or groups that have been traditionally underrepresented in key areas of society to be like, hey, let's let's maybe you know turn the corner on some of this stuff, and that's why I think you know there was a lot of support for people like Miguel Estrada and Janice Rogers Brown, who are people of color judges who were discussed in the realm of potential Supreme Court picks under Republican presidents. And I disagreed when Joe Biden and his fellow Democrats filibustered those people because of their race, because they didn't want a Republican to get the credit for it. That's sort of an, an old political battle that I think sort of undermines Biden's uh, sort of commitment to inclusivity because I think it was inclusivity with an asterisk. And yes, there's some partisan games being played on the other side. I'm just making the point uh, that this is not exclusive to the center-right coalition. The left plays these games as well. I just feel like you can make a decision if you're Joe Biden and you decide, look, the time has come for a black woman to be on the court. Um, Traditionally, they have been left out of the conversation. There are myriad qualified black women who would be excellent candidates should there be a vacancy. And within your group or within your team of advisors say, let's take an extra close look at Judge Brown Jackson, for example, uh, now that Breyer is going to retire. I don't really I'm a realistic person. I understand that in addition to substance, there's optics, there's the arc of history, there's all of that stuff that plays into some of these decisions. I think what is off-putting to a lot of people, 76% of us roughly, is so explicitly saying we are going to start and end the conversation with only these people. And that's not an argument of saying that they will necessarily, a black woman would necessarily be underqualified or not qualified. There'd be some white guy out there who'd be better qualified. It just seems that by limiting things so aggressively from the beginning, it's a form of 
like two forms of discrimination on race and on sex. And I saw Noah Bloom tweeted this earlier. Two quotes. One, you, a black woman, are the best black woman out of all black women to be on the Supreme Court. That's statement number one. Statement number two is you, a black woman, are the best person out of all potential candidates to be on the Supreme Court. He writes, some people will call you a racist for not thinking that the first sentence is better. And I think that kind of encapsulates my concern with this approach. I, I can understand that. I'd be interested to hear what some of the judges who are being considered feel about this themselves, because I'm, I'm willing to wager, I don't have much because babies cost a lot, um, but that they don't feel as if they are being disadvantaged in some way or there's some asterisk next to their consideration the same way that I don't think Kamala Harris feels that her selection to be Joe Biden's running mate is asterisk because she fit a, a demo criteria. So No, no, they, would, they wouldn't be unqualified or illegitimate because of the process. I just think I think the way he's gone about the process as sort of explicitly as he had, to me, it's just it, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I think he could have gotten the exact same outcome with the exact same sort of political win and optics win without just spelling it out in such a way that is like distasteful to me. 30 seconds, Jesse. Okay. I, it is one of those times where I can see both sides of the argument, um, but I just think that it is important to, A, maintain your campaign promises, um, B, to make sure that representation is the cornerstone of a Biden presidency, and it has been thus far. Yeah, and look, and, and, and I, B, think, I think the... The campaign promise point that you just made is a significant one. I think the time to really have criticized this criteria or this priority set was back then when he made it. Now he's just following through on it, for better and for worse, and we should judge the nominee on whoever she is based on her credentials coming up. Jesse, thank you. I'm Guy Benson. We are back, and it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. This is just unfathomably stupid and yet very much real and peak 2022 from foxnews.com. University of Nebraska alters Herbie Husker cartoon to avoid white supremacy link. The school says the process of changing the logo began back in 2020. Oh, dear. What was the white supremacy link with the Nebraska Cornhuskers of the Big Ten Conference and its cartoon mascot? Well, in the original logo, Herbie Husker is making an okay gesture. Some, over the last few years, have connected that symbol to white supremacy. And so they have now altered the cartoon, dating back to the 1970s, to show and depict Herbie making a number one sign. This is just so unbelievably dumb. We live in a brain-dead society at this point. The OK sign is not white supremacy. Some weirdo white supremacists on the Internet decided they were going to try to co-opt that sign and appropriate it for themselves. Most people just say it. Oh, this is OK. Or even the number three. You don't want to empower these people by letting them take over hand gestures that have nothing to do with racism. 
But here we have some people. Oh, worry warts. Uh-oh. Some people say this might be a thing of white supremacy. So our mascot cartoon dating back decades must be changed. It's just nuts. Meanwhile, at Colorado State University, which is my husband's alma mater, I've seen a few photographs. They have these posters around campus from the administration with a resource list of phone numbers and emails that students can use to contact officials at the school or counselors, dean of students, all this stuff, should they be harmed in some way by free speech events on campus. So if they're triggered by someone's speech, there's a resource bank of like 11 phone numbers they can call to report it, to get help. It's embarrassing. Mary Catherine Ham saw this, retweeted, and she asked the question, is there a helpline for growing up? I feel like a lot of college students could use that sort of helpline these days. They shouldn't be coddled by the administration. The administration should stand up for free speech and not treat free speech like it's an affront. Because it's not. And if you're offended as an adult by something that you hear, you can act like an adult and not go tattle. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. I have something to get off my chest. I will do so as soon as we come back. You don't want to miss it. It's next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. So I want to talk about a Twitter thread that I posted yesterday, last evening, and it went kind of viral, thousands of retweets and likes. And the subject was the absolute, craven, shameless hypocrisy of the Democratic Party when it comes to a whole host of issues regarding our elections and our democracy. So during the Trump years, for example, the Democrats held themselves out as the pro-democracy guardians of our republic. They were going to safeguard our norms and our institutions and our democracy, and they've gotten even more indignant and self-righteous about it since January 6th of last year. So January 6th was a national disgrace. I've made my views very clear on that. I've been harshly critical of former President Trump on his election lies, and I think his continued lies are very much an indictment of him and part of the reason why I am not eager to see him remain as the dominant figure in the Republican Party. Those are my views. What the Democrats have done throughout all of this is say, we are the ones who are the adults. We are the ones with the Republicans totally off the deep end who can be counted upon to be principled, to be selfless, to put our country above any party because America is worth it. And this is the fable. This is the fairy tale that they've told. And in 2018, the voters seemed to largely agree with them. 2020 was a bit of a mixed decision. A mixed bag, perhaps. The media, of course, has eaten it up with a giant spatula. They love it. Because the Democrats are able to sort of shapeshift from radical progressives who are often attacking our institutions 
to the people who are actually protecting the institutions. But the thing is, they toggle back and forth depending on what they perceive to be in their immediate, expedient political interests. And, of course, we talked a lot about that recently regarding the filibuster. I mean, to call their gymnastics on that issue shameless undersells how absolutely pathetic that performance has been. But it's not just the filibuster, which is one tool of the minority in the U.S. Senate that they are now agitating to get rid of. They've failed just narrowly, but they failed. This goes back, really, to a long pattern. And I'll get to some specific examples that prompted my Twitter thread here in just a second, but it goes back years. When progressives see institutions or norms, so the filibuster, for example, being a norm, or an institution like the U.S. Senate, or like the Electoral College, or like the Supreme Court, when they view those institutions as an obstacle to their power, to their influence, to their agenda, they go to the mats to try to get rid of or undermine or quote-unquote reform those institutions as to better suit their power-hungry desires. Which is why you had numerous Democrats running for president openly entertaining the idea of court packing. This insane idea of adding seats to the Supreme Court because the court has a conservative bent right now and that can't stand. So we're, we love our norms and institutions and we're going to protect them against Trump, but we're going to blow up the Supreme Court. We'll blow up the filibuster to do it. Oh, the Electoral College, that's quote-unquote anti-democratic. Let's find ways around that. The U.S. Senate is anti-democratic. It's not fair. Look at these 50 senators. They only represent X million number of Americans. That's not a majority. This is anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic. Let's reform the Senate. Let's add states to the union for the purpose of adding new Senate seats so we can control the Senate. This is stuff that has been not discussed on, like, far-left Twitter or message boards somewhere, or even worse, the YouTube comment section. This has been discussed by high-level Democratic officials and elected politicians and political candidates. I mean, you have multiple allegedly moderate Democrats running for Senate in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and elsewhere, Iowa, who are trying to sort of pretend that they're moderate, but also saying the first thing we do if we get to the Senate is blow up the filibuster so the left can pass all this crazy stuff. They're campaigning on it. The Norms and Institutions Party does not give a crap about our norms and institutions. They care about their power. And when purporting to defend the norms and institutions benefits them politically, or that's their perception, then they'll do it. If dismantling our norms and institutions is what they see right in front of their faces as what they need to do to achieve you know, whatever the current project du jour is, then they'll do that. There's no consistency. There is certainly no principle upon which they are operating. The principle is power. Now look, do Republicans do this sort of thing as well? Of course they do. The difference is, and there's another big difference that I'll get to a little bit later, but the difference is the Democrats preen as if they are these exemplars of good government and just civic-minded selflessness as opposed to the brutish, lizard-brained Republicans who are just awful. And the fact is the Democrats are just as bad, if not worse, 
right? They go crazy about President Trump lying about the 2020 election. And President Trump did lie about the 2020 election. He continues to lie about the 2020 election. I've rejected it over and over again. But I don't want to hear any scolding lectures from the people who have over and over again affirmed the election lies of Stacey Abrams, for example, down in Georgia, turning her into a national celebrity because of her paranoid conspiracies that she invented after she lost the governor's race in 2018. And I hope she loses again this year. I wonder if she'll concede this time. One leader after another in the Democrat Party went down there to kiss the ring, to condescend to voters, and to flatter the lie that she was robbed or there was fraud or the election wasn't legitimate. And it's not fringe or low-level figures. It's all the way up to you know presidential nominees or presidents. Then you had President Biden recently at his press conference suggesting that unless the Democrats, once again, here it comes, norms and institutions, no, we have to completely remake our entire election law in this country on a party line vote with not a single Republican on board. We have to do that. Oh, not for our own power, although all these things would help our own power. That's not really the point. The point is democracy. And President Biden tried to blow up the filibuster, which, of course, he and almost every Senate Democrat had jealously defended when they were using the filibuster. Now they're calling it this racist relic, even though they did it again. They mounted their own filibuster two weeks ago. It was briefly, it took a hiatus from being Jim Crow just for a day so the Democrats could use it again, as they did hundreds of times during the Trump administration. But Biden's out there demanding an end to the filibuster and calling all of his opponents, you know, the inheritors of the racist past and comparing them to Bull Connor and all that nonsense. And then in his press conference, he suggested not once but twice that if the Democrats don't get this huge power grab scheme through with their election reinvention, totally uprooting and replacing our national election laws. 100% on a party line vote. If that didn't succeed, which it didn't, thank goodness, then he couldn't be sure if the upcoming elections in this country would be legitimate. And that totally insane Democrat version of the big lie was winked at and basically embraced by the vice president as well. Some of the top leaders in Congress, Danny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, they have echoed the sentiment again. So you have the Democrats with their own big lie on elections and the legitimacy thereof because they didn't get their way. These are the precious, precious defenders, the heroes of our democracy, really, in their own minds. Except when any of these principles and high-minded statements or promises or rhetoric, if any of that turns out to be inconvenient to what they're trying to do for their own power, well, then it's all out the window. So on that front, we have heard for years the Democrats raging against dark money in politics. All this Republican dark money is dangerous. You have billionaires buying our democracy. Coke brothers, right? All this stuff. Never mind the fact that Democrats, for almost every major election in the last decade, Democrats have outspent Republicans. I mean, all the way back to the Obama years. 
Republicans are getting slammed in the money game. Democrats love money in politics, their own money in politics, and they win the money game. But they also, for their own base, they make a big deal out of how much they hate money in politics, especially dark money in politics. I mean, it's a joke. There's hypocrisy all over the place. You know, Obama was uh, totally, totally shameless on this issue. But the New York Times drove another nail into the coffin of this ridiculous talking point over the weekend. Headline from the Times, Democrats decried dark money. Then they won with it in 2020. A New York Times analysis reveals how the left outdid the right at raising and spending millions from undisclosed donors to defeat Donald Trump and win power in Washington. Oh, but you see, that's different because that's good, dark money. Because it's blue, dark money. Dark red money, bad. Dark blue money, well, acceptable, maybe good, vital even. And based on this Times analysis, by the way, in 2020, that of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with the Democratic Party, that group spent more than $1.5 billion in 2020 compared to roughly $900 million spent by a comparable sample of 15 of the most politically active groups aligned with the GOP. So by this metric... The Democrats outspent the Republicans on dark money by $600 million in 2020. And remember, the Democrats are the party that swear up and down that they're against this sort of thing. Except they're not. They also pretend that they're against gerrymandering. Oh, gerrymandering. This is dangerous. This is a Machiavellian machination by these evil Republicans who use all of their tools of power to shut Democrats out and underrepresent people of color. And they have all these stories about how terrible gerrymandering is, except when they're in charge of the process in states like Maryland or Illinois or now in New York. Those brutal anti-Republican gerrymands, well, you don't really see a lot of anger about those. You don't see people wringing their hands about the future of our democracy and insisting upon reforms to the system because the Democrats are doing what they need to do to win or maintain power, and that's good. But when Republicans do the same thing, it's bad. It's that simple. It's really not any more convoluted or nuanced than that. Power being used by Republicans for Republican power, right, is bad. Democrats using their power to reinforce democratic power is good. They'll dress it up and they'll say, well, what's really important, they'll stroke their chins and have these professorial conversations. It's just a power game. And I will underscore that reality with a specific example as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I'll continue my, you might call it a rant, I prefer to call it a soliloquy. And I want to address this. The new redistricting gerrymander map out of New York is wild. There's a new district that they've drawn in New York City that goes like Staten Island up through Brooklyn and across the bridge and part of Manhattan. And this is all part of a goal, according to the New York Post. And this is it's not like it's a secret. What the Democrats have done is drawn a map that could be 22 to 4 
in terms of House seats, Democrat to Republican. They are actively trying to eliminate half of the Republican seats in New York State. Republicans have eight right now, and their goal is to cut that down to four, and they have drawn some pretty ridiculous, ruthless districts to get that done. This is the party that supposedly opposes gerrymandering, except when they don't. And here's my favorite part of the story in New York. There's actually an independent commission in New York that's supposed to do this. Because the Democrats and the good governance people and the good government, you know, high-minded, we need to get rid of gerrymandering and, and we don't want this process to be so partisan. So let's do an independent commission. So they put that to voters in 2014 and voters said, yes, let's do that. Let's have an independent commission. Just like voters, by the way, last year in New York were asked about same-day voter registration and no-excuse absentee balloting, and New York voters rejected both of those things pretty handily, which I know Democrats would decry as voter suppression, but that's what their own voters decided in their state in New York last year. But this is 2014. Let's create an independent commission. All right, so the commission was bogged down, and there was an acrimonious process, and they couldn't agree. So guess what happened? The Democrats in the legislature took control over the map drawing process following the breakdown in the bipartisan negotiations and took the process over and redrew the lines in the most partisan way they could possibly think of to hopefully in their minds get rid of half of all Republican members of Congress in the state, members of the House. RRH Elections makes this point. New York passed an anti-gerrymandering constitutional amendment in 2014, creating the independent commission to draw the map and setting strict geographical and political standards for those districts. But Democrats just chose to sandbag the commission, ignore those standards, and do their own thing. And by the way, they had fought for that commission, right? The Democrats said, we all have to come together and for the good of the state, let's get this independent commission established. And then here they have an opportunity to ignore the commission take over the process and totally screw over the Republicans, and they are doing it with great efficiency and relish because their principles and their standards mean absolutely nothing. Now, as I concluded in my thread, the point of all of this is to note that Democrats will do anything, including violating any so-called principle, for power. This does not make them worse than the Republicans, but their phony, high-minded, country-over-party, norms-democracy nonsense is pure BS. This party came within two votes of breaking the Senate rules to change the Senate rules in order to ram through a totally partisan Democrat takeover of our entire country's election laws, which is insane. Yet they still want to be thought of as the good government party. It's hilarious. They wage war on every norm and institution that stands in their way. And unlike power-hungry Republicans who do lots of bad stuff, the Democrats usually have the so-called news media egging and rooting them on when they attempt their brazen power grabs. That's the other key difference here that I alluded to a few minutes ago. An absolute joke. These people do not believe in their principles. They believe in power. They are doing everything that they can to keep power, and it will be up to voters to wrest it from them in November. And I hope voters do exactly that. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Andy McCarthy joins me next.
five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. We're chugging into the Monday happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. 3 to 6 Eastern, that's the show every day. We hope you listen live. If you can't, there's the podcast, which is always free on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. You've got lots of options there. And this happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. Actually introduced it to some friends for the first time this weekend, and they loved it. You should try it, too, if you're 21-plus, of course. TheLongDrink.com can find out where it's sold near you. There are a lot more places that it's sold in the coming weeks and months. We keep teasing that. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of the book Ball of Collusion and several other books as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you as always. Andy, we're going to get into this a little bit later this hour in our final segment with Matt Napolitano on sports. But as a long-suffering Jets fan, I do wonder if you have a comment or a thought on the reported retirement that is looming for Tom Brady. Well, you know, I, I, I have a different perspective on this than most Jets fans do, Guy, because my son... Eddie, who you know a little bit, is a big Pats fan, which I've always taken um, to be his revenge against me because I. Yeah, how did you allow that to fan. happen as a parent? Well, I made him a Mets fan, and that's such a miserable existence. I didn't really feel I could demand more out of him. So, um, fair. fair. So I, but but uh, since I I never liked, I always like to see my son happy, and he's gotten to be very happy watching the Patriots all these years. I I actually became a grudging admirer of Brady's greatness. So in that sense, I'm in part sad to see him go, but happy to see him go at a time when he was performing so well. I think he was statistically, if he wasn't the best quarterback this year, he was one of the top two or three. So, uh. More to come with Matt Napolitano at the end of the hour here today. Andy, to more serious matters, I want to start on the Supreme Court, and this is a conversation that we began last week when the announcement was made preemptively, apparently. Uh, it seems like Justice Breyer was not quite ready to let the cat out of the bag, but then it happened. Perhaps there's a tie-in there with uh, what happened here with Tom Brady and his retirement that's coming. But setting that aside, it was announced that Stephen Breyer would be leaving the court at the end of the term. And then, of course, there is this whole discussion instantly about who would replace him and what would the process look like. And I had my thoughts about it. I Sort of think it's going to be a relatively low drama affair for various reasons. But one of the interesting wrinkles that we've seen is the decision by President Biden, and this started when he was a candidate, and this is a promise he made on the campaign trail where he said he would only consider for a Supreme Court vacancy if one were to arise as like the first opening during his term, he would only consider a black female nominee, and that's precisely what the White House has affirmed he's going to do. We debated that a little bit with Juan Williams on the show last week, and Juan thought that I was looking at this all backwards, and it was 
perhaps even a little bit racist of me to suggest that there would not be a qualified black woman or that a white man could do the job better. I obviously suggested neither such thing, but that was what Juan was hearing, and we had a respectful but somewhat heated back and forth on it. Well, since we had that conversation, a poll came out over the weekend from ABC News that actually asked the American people about this very question. Should the president consider all potential nominees or only limit the pool to black women? And it was an overwhelming three to one margin by which the American people said, no, this should not be a process where it's limited out of the gate based on sex or gender. Seventy six percent of Americans said the president should consider all qualified nominees and less than a quarter of Americans took Juan's position on this. And I know that there was a lot of gnashing of teeth on the very online left Twitter leftists are sort of their own breed. They've got uh, a very sort of myopic echo chamber that they operate in, and they could not bring themselves to believe that these numbers are true. They were saying this was a fake poll, and if it's not fake, it's because so many people are racist, and this is yet more proof of our systemic racism, and on and on it goes. But the heartening thing to me, Andy, and I'm curious to hear your perspective, is that the American people, at least as far as the president decided to broadcast this and telegraph what he was going to do, the American people just aren't fans of race or sex-based discrimination in a process like this, which I actually view as a very healthy thing. And I think it also underscores how out of touch this president is with the country writ large. He's governing for a pretty narrow band of activists in his own party. Of course, that's not how he ran as a primary candidate, and then he beat that wing of his party, but then he's been governing out of fear of that wing ever since. It's not serving him well. Guy, I really think that this goes to something that's been a problem for half a century, which is that Joe Biden has very poor judgment. The way he did this was utterly inept, And it ultimately will hurt his nominee, no matter who she is, um, as as much as it's roiled the country with this controversy, which is utterly unnecessary. I mean, let's just, you know, to to take both the the, uh, practical and the political together, and let's try to take race out of it for a second. I know that that's impossible to do the way the dialogue goes in this country. And I'm not saying it's impossible for you. I'm just saying in, in general in the world we live in. But nobody, sight unseen, and with all other things being equal, would, would possibly say a process in which the decision maker having to make a choice to pick the best person for a job said, I'm only going to look at 7% of the applicant pool. Nobody with common sense would say that was a sensible way to go about finding the best person. So, you know, right off the bat, you start off with something that's that's from a from the from standpoint of judgment is a wrong way to go about it. And then think about who the candidate is. All Biden had to do here was simply say there are many, many worthy candidates we're going to do our work roll up our sleeves and pick the best one and then allow a respectable amount of of time to go by and pick an african-american woman and at that point no one would be able to say he was only picking her because it was like an affirmative action uh structure uh he would have said i'm going to pick 
you know, a fine candidate, and he would have picked a good candidate, and no one would have been able to be in a position to say that, you know, the thing was rigged going in. And anybody competent would have done it that way, not just because that's the better way to do it, but for the benefit of the candidate. You would think that, you know, you want to put the candidate you're going to to pick uh, in the best position. So, you know, when people say that, uh, you know, Biden's old, he's lost his fastball, he's senescent or whatever else gets said, my response to this always is this is what this guy's been doing for half a century. You know, there's a reason why people say that he's been wrong on every major matter of public policy for decades. It's because he, you know, he, he just does stuff like this. And I, I just think it's um, he's created a completely unnecessary controversy. And I'm quite happy, as as you say, that most people who I think uh, people of goodwill who want to live in a in a colorblind society uh, it occurs to them that this is not the right way to go about things to to take a to make a process where oh, you it's know, just I'm distasteful. only race or sex. Uh, I'm sorry. It's distasteful, I think, to a lot of people. If we yeah. want to live in a colorblind and pluralistic society, then it's distasteful to do it so explicitly the way that Biden has done. And then, of course, there's the other side of it. The activist left wing class, they believe that a colorblind society is, in fact, racist. And that is not what we should aspire to. We should aspire to anti-racism, which requires race fixation and this type of approach. And I know that that's, you know, very much um, a, a popular theory on the hard left and, of course, very dominant in a lot of pop culture and news media and within the Democratic Party, but it is still very much a fringe element within the American people, it would seem, and the poll that I just cited would, uh, in my mind at least, reinforce my initial reaction to this process that Biden, again, chose. He chose to go about it this way and to telegraph to everyone that that's what he was planning on doing, which is why this little uh, you know, dust-up has even occurred at all. Andy, very quickly, I know that you wrote a piece knocking down this parlor game in D.C. about how maybe Kamala Harris could be nominated for this Supreme Court vacancy I have already gone through my reasons why I think that's totally a non-starter. You wrote a piece about it as well. Just in in a minute or less, summarize why you think we shouldn't waste any more than a minute even talking about it. Well, because it would hand over control of the Senate to Republicans, which Biden would never do. I I think, Guy, because we haven't done this since the 70s with Nelson Rockefeller, people don't maybe understand how the process works. But if the vice presidency becomes vacant because the president puts the vice president on the Supreme Court, then the new vice president has to be nominated by the president and then approved by both houses of Congress. And in a 50-50 Senate, why would Mitch McConnell agree, since, since there's nothing in the Constitution that says they have to have uh, – they have to confirm someone, just that the nominee has to be confirmed, why would McConnell agree – to confirm a vice president that would turn over control of the Senate back to Democrats. He'd be crazy to do that. And also, she's not qualified. She failed the bar. There's many other reasons. And the White House has told reporters we are going to pick someone who is a judge, who has been a judge, who's a sitting judge. That is one of the clues that we've gotten. And, of course, that does not apply to the vice president of the United States. Andy, on a totally separate 
matter. I want to get your reaction to something. It's a soundbite from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. She was on uh, a lefty podcast, and she was sort of laughing at the idea that Fox News, our network, alleges that Democrats are soft on crime, and it's sort of like, oh, this weird thing that Fox is talking about. Here's what she said in Cut 9. If you look at Fox on a daily basis, I mean, do you remember the four boxes that you had that we had on all the TVs, right, which mm-hmm. is on my TV right now? So right now, just to give you a sense, so CNN, Pentagon, as many as 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened alert. Okay, true. Same on MSNBC. CNBC is doing their own thing about the market. And then on Fox is Janine Pirro talking about soft on crime consequences. I mean, what, what does that even mean, right? Um, so there's an alternate universe on some uh, coverage. What's scary about it is a lot of people watch that. So, Andy, I mean, this comes amidst a spree of police shootings, meaning police officers who have been shot over the last week or so. We've seen... Violent crime spiking in a lot of major American cities. Some of these cities setting records for homicides last year. Mass looting and other forms of lawlessness across the country, particularly in areas run by progressive Democrats and controlled by very left-wing, hyper-progressive prosecutors. And the White House press secretary seems to not understand what is even meant by soft on crime as a criticism. And I wonder if you might be able to help her with that. Yeah, well, maybe she ought to listen to I actually would have thought that she said this herself, but maybe she should listen to the Democrats who keep saying that, you know, this whole defund the police movement is killing us. You know, she talks about an alternative universe. The universe that people are actually inhabiting is one in which violent crime is surging. I mean, that's just a fact. That's not a that's not a Fox News thing. That's that's a fact that anyone with with eyes to see can see. Um, so, you know, it's hard to wrap your brain around how someone who is – Satsaki's not intelligent, and she obviously has to be able to understand this. But if you're so captured by politics that, you know, you can no longer see the things that are actually affecting people's day-to-day lives and that that's having a real impact on – the president and his and his approval ratings and his ability to get anything done and his party Not because yep. Fox News says so, but because it's a fact. Right. It's Fox is talking about it because it's real. And that answer was sort of her chuckling along with her sort of lefty buddies about the weird bubble that Fox supposedly creates for its viewers. But I think on this one in particular on crime, I think she was maybe demonstrating and revealing the thickness of her own bubble, actually. Yeah. I, I wonder, Guy, if she should maybe think about why did Eric Adams get elected mayor of New York City? Because it certainly wasn't because of Fox News. He yeah. was the only candidate in a city that's exploding with crime who said, we need to address crime here, and he's a Democrat. Very good point. That's uh, a thought from outside the bubble, perhaps, from Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple books. Andy, we always appreciate your time and your insights. We look forward to next time. Thanks so much, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show, and the happy hour continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. It's the happy hour. 
So Quiet Wyatt sent me this column from Jason Gay in the Wall Street Journal, of course. Wyatt was up at 3 a.m. with his Rook Coffee, reading the journal cover to cover, as he does on any given, you know, Saturday. And he loved this column because it's about his way of life, Wyatt's. Headline, The Quiet Joys of the Very, Very Early Morning Club. And Jason Gay describes how he has become someone who goes to bed quite early and then rises very early pre-dawn. And this is sort of what some people trend towards as they get older. Wyatt is 21, and this is how he operates. Wyatt, I know we joke sometimes that you're up at like 3.30 in the morning. In all honesty, on average, what time do you actually wake up? I would have to say it used to be very early uh, when I would go and go see the sunrise with my coffee. But now, since I'm back in D.C., it's probably on average about 6 o'clock, which is still pretty early. That is still quite early and sometimes earlier. I know sometimes it's, you know, 4 or 5 a.m. He sent this to me sort of like, huh, what do you think? Maybe I've got this thing right and you've got it backwards. And I just I read the whole column and I, I just can't I can't get behind it. I am someone who is a night owl. I just always have been. To this day, I'm usually up till about 1 o'clock in the morning. Then I sleep. You could say I sleep in compared to other people, but I'm sleeping for roughly the same amount of time, 7 or 8 hours. Then I get up and I do my work and have my day, and my day continues often late. And then I want to relax and unplug and watch sports and watch Netflix or whatever, and I stay up later. That's just where my internal clock is is set. Maybe that could change one day as I age. Maybe if I have kids or something, it'll change by necessity. But I think I will stay right where I am for now. Thank you very much. But I appreciate the effort, Wyatt. And I'm happy. If this is what makes you happy, you go for it. You do you. I'll do me. We'll live our lives. I'll be up late. You'll be up early. It works out. Equilibrium. But we are both always awake 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time for The Guy Benson Show which will be right back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour here on the program this evening. We spoke earlier in our first hour with Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. We talked about immigration and more with Byron. Here's part of that conversation. If they need to clarify the law, that the vice president can't change the election, using his words there. No right to, quote, change the presidential election results. That's how Trump frames it. Uh, If that needs to be clarified in law, then that would suggest that Pence did have the right to change the election results unilaterally as vice president. And that feeds into his whole narrative that Pence was weak and wrong and that the election was stolen from him and Pence could have done something about it with uh, a magic wand. There's a lot of nonsense piled on top of nonsense there, but it seems like the closest Trump himself has come to just straight up admitting that what he wanted Pence to do was change the election results. And I just wonder what you make of the president's statement there. And then I have one follow up on the politics of it. Well, he did come out and flat out say it the last sentence of the uh, statement you just mentioned, which he sent out last night, was, quote, unfortunately, he, Pence, 
Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. Um, so, listen, Pence was right in what he did and refused to do on January 6th. There's simply no doubt about it. And Trump put Pence under a lot of pressure, privately and publicly, to try to go along with this idea that you could overturn the election results. Pence correctly saw that he could not. There was no basis to do it. Um, and he didn't do it. He stood up to it. So I think Pence showed a lot of strength. He showed a lot of character. And he was right. And I agree, this is, this is Trump coming out and just flat out saying he wanted to overturn the election results. Yeah, which is not surprising because he was pressuring Republican officials in a number of states to help him steal the election. In Arizona, in Georgia, he told the Secretary of State to you know fa- find, go out there and find thousands of votes so he could win in Georgia. He's also gone on this revenge tour trying to basically end the careers of Republican politicians, even supporters of him, who were not sufficiently eager to participate in overturning an election. And sometimes his defenders say, well, Trump isn't really talking about overturning the election per se. He's concerned about irregularities and slates of electors and that sort of thing. But he then sort of kneecaps those arguments by saying, unfortunately, Pence didn't exercise the power that Trump believes that he had to, quote, overturn the election. And setting aside the total lack of legal basis for Pence to have done something like that, and Pence was correct to refuse to do it, and, you know, there was a reason why some of the rioters on January 6th were chanting for his death because they had been convinced by a bunch of lies that maybe he could have done something differently. But, Byron, if Al Gore in 2000 had decided, well, I've been cheated, the Supreme Court, you know, short-circuited the recount process, and I'm really the rightful winner, or I might be the rightful winner in Florida and of the presidency, I don't like how this went down, I'm the vice president, I'm going to preside over this process of the counting the electoral votes, and I'm just going to overturn the election. I don't care what the Supreme Court said. I don't care what anyone else decided or what the votes looked like. I am going to toss this election out or toss it back to the House or something like that. I don't think anyone would have defended that. I mean, there have been some hardcore lefty hacks who would have, but overall that would have been seen as an absolutely egregious attempted abuse of power. And looking forward, if Joe Biden or the Democrats, whoever's running, lose in 2024 and Kamala Harris decides, you know what, I don't like this outcome, I'm going to try to overturn the election and maybe the Democrats would have the House of Representatives. It's not looking likely at this point, but, you know, let's let's uh, try to overturn the election. And as vice president, I, Kamala Harris, have the ability to do this on my own. I mean, that is something that would raise howls my full interview with byron york and today's entire show start to finish available online on demand totally for free every day that's the podcast guybensonshow.com foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast you've got lots of options on demand free of charge when we come back matt with sports we have to talk about the football from yesterday plus a major major rumor 
That would be a sea change in the NFL. We will get to that when we come back. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. From 31 yards, McPherson and Cincinnati is heading to the Super Bowl. He called it again, I'm sure. He walked up and he goes, can you believe, Coach? We're going to the Super Bowl. And they did it. They beat Mahomes at home. Wow, Joe Burrow. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. That was the call. CBS Sports, Jim Nance, Tony Romo yesterday. The first game of the championships. And you heard it there. The Cincinnati Bengals walking off with a field goal in Kansas City to advance to the Super Bowl. And then last evening, it was the Los Angeles Rams at home in another very good close game, beating the 49ers of San Francisco. They will be back in the Super Bowl for the second time, I believe, in three or four years. They were just there not long ago against the Patriots, where they lost. That was kind of a snoozer. But Rams-Bengals upcoming in two weeks. And joining us here to close out the show today and talk about it, as well as another major NFL rumor, is Matt Napolitano, sports reporter for Fox News Headlines 24-7, Sirius XM Channel 115. Matt, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. All right, so big picture question. Just looking back the last two weeks of the NFL playoffs, I know that I guess the Rams-Niners finish wasn't technically a walk-off. The Rams were able to take a knee after that big interception, but the game was in doubt. The outcome was in doubt within the two-minute warning and down to just you know the last minute or so of the game. The previous five consecutive games, dating back to the divisional weekend last weekend, the previous five games were walk-offs, which is kind of unheard of. Can you recall a better NFL playoffs all-in from an entertainment standpoint in your adult lifetime as a sports fan? I honestly can't. These last two weeks, football fans have been spoiled rotten with the fourth quarter down to the buzzer or overtime thrillers that we've gotten and the fact that as the end result, you've got a total underdog that no one anticipated reaching the Super Bowl and the Cincinnati Bengals going up against a team that went really all in on this season, the Los Angeles Rams and trying to acquire as many mega stars as they could to really stack the deck. And now we're set up for what should hopefully be a great showdown two weeks from now in Los Angeles. I don't know how you can count out Cincinnati. I know that they will almost certainly be the underdogs in this game, but I think that's a role that they're used to thriving in, certainly down the stretch of the regular season and then here in the postseason. Joe Burrow, guy's just a winner, right? And time and time again, they're going on the road into tough environments and winning. They will kind of sort of be on the road again for the Super Bowl. Ironically, the uh, Cincinnati Bengals are technically the home team for the Super Bowl, which is kind of funny because <laughs> they're playing at the L.A. Rams home at SoFi Stadium. But, yeah, this is just what Joe Burrow does. You know, we saw it at LSU when he won the Heisman, and now he has a chance to become just the third quarterback in history to win a college national title and a Super Bowl in the likes. He'd be joining uh, two fellow Joes, actually. He'd be joining Joe Namath and Joe Montana. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Burrow steps up. I mean, it's just been absolutely impressive what the Bengals have managed to pull together after spending the last two seasons as really cellar dwellers. I mean, they were 6-25-1 the past two years, and now here they are at a shot at their first 
Super Bowl win in franchise history, their third appearance all time. It's going to be an interesting matchup against a really tough Rams defense. You know, Matt, part of the reason, and I'll see if you agree or disagree with this, part of the reason I think that this postseason has been especially exciting, and I say that, by the way, as someone without a strong rooting interest, my favorite NFL team was nowhere near the playoffs, and I'm not even a huge NFL guy in general. I prefer college football, college basketball to the pros, but what has been especially cool about some of these games is that it wasn't nip and tuck back and forth wire to wire in all of these contests. There were a number of games, including the Kansas City game yesterday with the Bengals coming back to win, where it kind of looked like the game might be slipping away or never really felt like one of the teams was that competitive until all of a sudden they were, and they were back in it, and then they won. I mean, watching the first half yesterday, the game at Arrowhead, you kind of got the sense, all right, the Chiefs, might be squandering a few opportunities, like at the very end of the half where they came up empty. Like, yeah, that's not that's not great. They probably wanted at least three points there. But they seem to have this thing in hand. And then, boy, they didn't. There have been some dramatic comebacks this postseason, which, of course, I think adds to the aura and the excitement and the hype and I think what will become the legend of this postseason. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that you saw Kansas City score on their first three drives, touchdowns going up 21-3 to in yesterday's game, a lot of people were like, you know what, this is clearly in the bag. The Chiefs are going to be going back to the Super Bowl for the third year in a row. But something just happened within the second half that the wheels really came off for KC, and Cincinnati took advantage of those errors. The fact that Patrick Mahomes was making sloppy passes, there's reports of some infighting between Tyreek Hill and Nicole Hardman on the sidelines over the amount of targets they were getting during the game. And, you know, that kind of divided the Chiefs in that sense. And even you go back last weekend where it looked like the Rams had it in the bag against the Buccaneers, but Tom Brady orchestrates an insane comeback and forces it to the final seconds where the Matt Gay field goal ends up winning it for L.A. and sends them on to the next round. It's really something else to see the and fight you know what? I would even add the last two rounds. Yeah, and of, co- of course the, the Bucks comeback fell just short, and we won't even talk about the insanity at the end of the Buffalo-Kansas City game, which was just totally epic. But the uh, 49ers-Packers game, too, it wasn't a huge comeback by San Francisco, but it kind of almost felt like one in that it just felt like a game that the Packers were going to win. It was not comfortable, but you just got the sense, you know, San Francisco's not going to score, and then boom, big play, and on a dime, the game shifts. And that momentum, I think, was very much on the side of Cincinnati yesterday. And the question was, can they actually hang on and actually get it done? And, of course, they did. And then in the late game, the Rams, as you mentioned, prevailed at home in a pretty wild atmosphere, pretty closely divided crowd, and they will host this Super Bowl. Back-to-back seasons where the host stadium will actually be the home stadium of one of the teams that's competing. It had never happened before in the history of the Super Bowl, and now back-to-back years in Tampa and in Los Angeles. Now, speaking of Tampa, Matt, this was another huge NFL story that didn't necessarily cloud the weekend of football, but very much was a hot topic of conversation. The reported looming, apparently impending retirement of Tom Brady after 22 seasons, that seemed to be quasi-denied by Brady's camp after the reports went everywhere. 
I just wonder what you make of that. I mean, it kind of seems like he's going to call it quits but wants to do it on his own terms, sort of some shades back to the Supreme Court situation last week here in Washington and a premature leak perhaps. But there's at least some discussion out there that maybe Brady wants to push off the announcement a little bit because of some financial uh, concerns. If he waits a little bit longer, he might have a certain amount of money coming to him. There's also maybe more of a fantasy out there from some of his fans saying maybe he was planning on retiring, but now he's going to be mad that someone decided to leak this and do it for him. And now he's going to go on some sort of, you know, spite filled revenge tour and play one more season. What do you think of this whole Brady situation? Well, first of all, that latter part, please do not put that into the atmosphere. As a New York Jets fan who suffered with Tom Brady for a long, long time, (laughs) please do not put that back into the atmosphere. That being said, you know, the report came out from ESPN with Adam Schefter and, and Jeff Darlington. Jeff Darlington has been covering Tom Brady for decades since he first came into the NFL. And I think that there's definitely a scoop that was there, but it just got leaked out prematurely, much like you brought up the Stephen Breyer situation. It's very similar to that. This is definitely news that was going to be coming down the pipeline that Brady wanted to do on his own terms. His Frank Sinatra did it my way moment. And that's why his camp is trying to retreat and say, no, he hasn't decided anything yet. No, nothing's locked down. We don't know for sure. I think they're basically saying, you know what? Yeah, he is going to retire, but if he's going to retire, he's going to say it. It's not going to be a network that reports it for him. And you know what? With the career the guy's had, he's going to deserve that moment in the spotlight where he gets to go right off into the sunset and bid farewell. Oh, yeah. I mean, and look, I have never been. career. Oh, I mean, it's insane is the right word. I've never been a Tom Brady fan or a Patriots fan, and it's easy to root against you know, a dominant team like that and a dominant player, but you also have to respect what the guy has done. He's earned every bit of that GOAT moniker, greatest of all time. It's not really in dispute in my mind. What is it, 10 Super Bowls that he's played in, seven that he won? He just couldn't beat my Giants when they would go head-to-head in the Super Bowl. I have to point that out. But just the sheer amount of dominance from this guy, and then he goes to Tampa and wins there you know, in his 40s. And the thing, Matt, that struck me when the news broke, and I tweeted about this, that he was uh, going to be retiring, again, yet unconfirmed, Tom Brady made his debut when I still had half of my time left in high school. I had two years left of high school when this guy <laughs> broke in to the NFL. I'm almost 37, and as of now, still he's the defending Super Bowl champion with his – Second franchise, I mean, the durability, in addition to the dominance, is breathtaking. I mean, I remember sitting there at 11 years old watching Drew Bledsoe get hurt when the Patriots were taking on the Jets. Mo Lewis knocking out Drew Bledsoe on the sideline. And this kid, the 199th pick overall in the 2000 draft, Tom Brady steps in, and the rest is history from there. I mean, he he did not come away with the win that day against the Jets. But it's remarkable that all these years later, the dominance is just absolutely surreal. I mean, he put up some of the best numbers of his career this year at 44 years old. He was out there looking like he was playing in his prime, like going back to the early 2000s. What the guy has done against time and against opponents is just something that we will not see ever again on, within the game of football. But the fact of the matter is, he's going to probably call it quits. All signs are pointing to him making his exit. You did bring up that there is a stipulation within his contract where he could get some extra money, and that's probably why he's delaying the decision. 
it's an extra $15 million, and, you know, that's nothing to uh, – yeah, That's no, uh, nothing to sneeze at. I, I, could, I could imagine waiting uh, a little while and waiting a few days on something for $15 million. Uh, not that he's going to be hurting for cash ever. But, yeah, that's one story to watch. And, of course, the Super Bowl, two weeks from yesterday, mid-February, Rams, Bengals, and we might try to get Bill Hemmer back on this show soon. Huge Cincinnati fan. I think I'll be pulling for Burrow and company in the big game. We'll see. Matt Napolitano, sports reporter, Fox News, headlines 24-7 on Sirius XM Channel 115. Matt, always appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Guy, for having me. And with that, we are out of time. The clock is at... Triple zero, so we're going to walk off, just like so many of these NFL playoff games. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. I'll be back in studio here in D.C. Looking forward to that. Same time, same place. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.